when you have your own allies who are so annoyed by sanctions that they start to devise mechanisms to circumvent US sanctions, I think this is a red flag. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. My guest today, Agathe Demaray, is author of the new book, Backfire, How Sanctions Reshape the World Against U.S. Interests. The book makes the provocative, but I think ultimately compelling argument that an over-reliance on sanctions as a tool of U.S. foreign policy is making sanctions a less effective tool of U.S. foreign policy. Agathe Demaray explains in our conversation how she came to this idea as a treasury official in the French government working in Moscow and Beirut, where she saw firsthand some of the unintended impacts of U.S. sanctions. She is now the global forecasting director of the Economist Intelligence Unit. The book is well worth your time. I've posted a link to it in the show notes. You can also read a recent foreign affairs article by Agathe Demaray, drawing on many of the arguments she makes in the book. I'll post a link to that as well. Now, here is my conversation with Agathe Demaray, author of Backfire, How Sanctions Reshape the World Against U.S. Interests. was a French government official for a French treasury based in Moscow in 2014. Well, I was in Moscow before that, but I would say that my intro to sanctions was really in 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea and started to back separatist rebels in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine. And so from one day to another, you know, I became a sanctions person. And I think what was really interesting to me and what gave me the idea of writing a book about the ripple effects of sanctions is that from that moment, I could sense that sanctions that we were imposing on Russia had impacts not only on Russia, but also on some European companies, on some Western firms more generally. And we would get these meetings, you know, with some European companies saying, yes, sanctions are important, but they also have an impact on our operations, on jobs elsewhere. And so we needed to find a balance between these things. And that's how I had this idea. And then I moved still for French Treasury 
to Beirut and there I was covering Syria, I was covering Iraq and I was covering Iran among other countries, so all heavily sanctioned countries. And I remember talking with Syrian friends in Beirut and they would tell me about the difficulties they had, for instance, to buy birthday presents. I remember a friend wanted to buy a bike for his son and the explanation for them was sanctions. And I didn't know if it was true or not, but again, I could sense that sanctions really had ripple effects well beyond the Syrian elite and the people they were supposed to target and punish for their behavior. So that was how I started to have the idea about the book. And then I moved to London. And in London, I was actually covering also Iran and the US exit from the nuclear deal. It had a big impact on European companies. I mentioned in the book, for instance, that French energy company Total had to exit Iran and a multi-billion dollar investment there. So again, some ideas about this. And finally, also, I followed the saga around the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and all the US sanctions on this pipeline very closely. And again, I could sense that there were a lot of disputes and a lot of tensions in the transatlantic relations about U.S. sanctions. And I wasn't sure these were taken into account in Washington. When I was talking with American policymakers, I wasn't sure there was a lot of recognition of this. And so that's how I got the idea about the book. And then I started working on it. And then the pandemic arrived. Good time to write in lockdown and, and know the book is published. So there have been a number of studies and books over the years that discuss, identify, define, broadly speaking, like the impact of sanctions beyond their intended impact. But what I find so unique about your work, about your research, is how you identify a very specific backlash against U.S. sanctions, both by adversaries of the United States and also by you know frenemies of the United States and even sometimes allies who seek to avoid being caught up in U.S. sanctions. Are there any particular sanctions events over the last couple of years that are particularly triggering to the kind of backlash that you describe in your book? I think that there are two examples that I discuss in the book that are good illustrations of this, of these tensions between Washington and Europe about extraterritorial U.S. sanctions and in particular U.S. secondary sanctions. I think there's a lot of confusion about U.S. secondary sanctions, what they are. In practice, U.S. secondary sanctions mean that all companies around the world, American or foreign, must make a choice between, say, trade with Iran and trade with the U.S. And given the prominence of the U.S. dollar and U.S. economic hegemony, obviously this is not really a choice. Every company around the world chooses to retain access to the U.S. market. And so there are two examples in the book. The first example is the U.S. exit from the nuclear deal. It was really a strange time for European companies because the European Union was still in the deal and the European Union was telling European companies, please stay in Iran, stay in Tehran, because it was really important to show Iran that it had some interest, that there was a clear benefit in remaining in the deal for Iran. But obviously, all European companies exited the Iranian market because they were worried of falling under U.S. secondary sanctions. And so I discuss in the book the case of Total. Can I just have you just kind of go into a little detail about the case of Total, which is a French energy giant, which, as you previously said, because of the threat of secondary sanctions from the United States, was forced to exit major 
deals in Iran. What happened with Total? Well, essentially what happened is that Total just couldn't stay in Iran if it wanted to stay in the U.S. And Total has a big presence in the U.S. too. And a lot of Total's funding is in U.S. dollars. And Total at the time was developing a big, giant gas field, the South Pars gas field. And actually, this was really a very tough time for Total because it was all lost, the investment, but it was a no-brainer for them. They just needed to leave Iran Otherwise, they would fall under U.S. secondary sanctions. And so it was absolutely a no-brainer. But what was really interesting was that there was full diplomatic support for Total among European capitals, and especially in Paris, of course, because Total is a French company. But this had virtually zero impact on Washington's decision. And I think that there was a lot of frustration among European capitals at the time that the U.S. wouldn't acknowledge European economic interests in Iran. The U.S. had unilaterally exited the deal. Actually, Iran was complying with the terms of the deal. And I think that this did a lot of damage to the U.S. reputation at the time. And so this is something that I discuss in the book because I think this is a dangerous development for the U.S. and for U.S. foreign policy. And I think it does a lot of damage to the U.S. reputation. So... You know, despite, as you know, the diplomatic support for Total, the threat of treasury sanctions forced Total to leave Iran. But did Europe in any way try to devise mechanisms so that going forward, companies like Total would not fall under these types of secondary sanctions, might be able to avoid sanctions like this? Essentially, Europe has made what they call strategic autonomy a top priority, and actually something went unnoticed. This was all before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I should mention it here because following the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we've seen almost complete alignment between US and European policies regarding sanctions. But this wasn't the case before. And actually, shortly after the inauguration of Joe Biden as US president, the EU released a white paper about European strategic autonomy. And in the white paper, it is written clearly that Europe wants to insulate itself from the consequences of extraterritorial sanctions from other economic powers. And so the subtext is very clear. This is all about shielding itself from the impact of US secondary sanctions. And actually, Europe at the time with Iran designed a mechanism called INSTEX to continue trading with Iran despite the U.S. exit from the nuclear deal. INSTEX is a very small mechanism. It's actually akin to barter, so it has low ambitions. But I think it wasn't acknowledged in U.S. foreign policy circles that this was a striking development when you have your own allies who are so annoyed by sanctions that they start to devise mechanisms to circumvent U.S. sanctions, I think this is a red flag. It's a clear sign that something is not going very well. And I think that it's important that there is some acknowledgement of this. And of course, a key point in your book and a point that I think is largely unacknowledged by the foreign policy mainstream in the United States is that one impact of wielding unpopular unilateral sanctions like the Trump administration did against Iran, the secondary sanctions that impacted French companies and European countries, was that 
allies, as you said, in Europe would devise their ways to avoid U.S. sanctions, thereby reducing in the long term potentially the efficacy of sanctions as a tool of U.S. foreign policy. This is something that I coin as sanctions resistance. I would say that sanctions are like antibiotics. They are critically important to U.S. foreign policy because they fill in the void between empty diplomatic declarations on the one hand that are absolutely not going to impress someone like Vladimir Putin or the Islamic regime in Iran. And on the other hand, deadly military interventions, which obviously have a high human cost. So sanctions are very important. But if there is a lot of use of sanctions, if there is a proliferation of US sanctions, then we're going to see some side effects and some resistance growing. It's exactly the same as for antibiotics. And so unsurprisingly, we're seeing a rise in mechanisms to bypass sanctions or to insulate economies from sanctions. And then we have countries that are at odds with the US that are also doing this. So I think this is not surprising, of course, that countries under sanctions would try to find ways to circumvent these sanctions. These developments mainly take place in the financial sphere. So we have de-dollarization, of course, for trade. For instance, Russia and China for their bilateral trade, they mainly use Russian rubble and the Chinese renminbi. And this is not a random thing. It is a strategy that they have, that they have designed to insulate part of their bilateral trade since 2020 from US sanctions. And there is something else that I don't think was widely acknowledged. Only half of the reserves of the Russian central bank have been frozen. So the Russian central bank before the invasion of Ukraine had around 640 billion US dollar or equivalent of US dollars in reserves. Half of these only have been frozen. Why is that? Because the other half are denominated in renminbi, in Indian rupees, in gold, all currencies that the US and the EU and other Western democracies cannot have any leverage on. They can't freeze reserves that aren't held in their currencies. So I do want to continue to ask you about examples of sanctions resistance as you describe it. But you are also going to mention a second sanctions event over the last couple of years that triggered a backlash. And I'd love to have you explain what that was. So going back to that one, this event was the Nord Stream 2 saga. I actually say that it was a saga. So Nord Stream 2 was a gas pipeline that was meant to connect Russia to Germany via the Baltic Sea. So, of course, in hindsight, it's very, very clear that the idea of increasing Russian gas supplies wasn't a good one for Europe. And there were a lot of debates, even at the time in Europe, about whether this was a good strategy. And I would say, actually, that the anti-Nord Stream 2 camp was very vocal. And I think there was a lot of opposition to this gas pipeline project, also on climate change grounds. There were a lot of concerns about it. But what was clear among European capitals, and especially in Germany and also in France, is that there was a clear consensus that the US was taking things one step too far by imposing sanctions on this gas pipeline, on this project that had essentially nothing to do with the US. And the way several European capitals put it was that they don't give lessons to Washington about whether they are able or should construct gas pipelines or oil pipelines on US soil. And I think that this was really a watershed moment, a very important moment, because there was a lot of frustration. 
there were some hopes at some point that Germany would abandon the project, for instance, after the poisoning of Alexei Navalny, who's a Russian opposition politician. But at the time, Angela Merkel really wanted to send a message to the US that the EU and Germany in particular wouldn't cave in and wouldn't give in to US demands. And I think this was part of the explanation about why Germany in particular continued to support the project despite all these extraterritorial US sanctions. Actually, the US, well, US senators even threatened at some point to impose sanctions on German port stevedores in the North Sea <laughs> who were going to work a bit remotely on the project. So that was really a very important moment for frustration about US extraterritorial sanctions. And again, I'm not entirely sure that this was fully acknowledged in Washington. And I think such moments, such tensions in the transatlantic relationship are dangerous because they can only benefit countries under sanctions, primarily in that case, Russia. And I think that one can be sure that Putin rejoices every time he sees cracks in the transatlantic partnership. And I personally don't think that this is a good thing. So one trend that you discuss in your book is the use of U.S. sanctions to undermine Chinese economic growth, particularly in the semiconductor sphere. The U.S. is, is using sanctions under the CHIPS Act and, and others to deny China the opportunity to get high-tech silicone microchips. What impact do you see on a rising and more powerful China combined with a United States that is seemingly very willing, almost seemingly too willing, to use sanctions as a first resort in its foreign policy? So the golden age of financial sanctions is probably over and that the future of sanctions is probably export controls. So shifting from financial sanctions to export controls. And this is exactly what we are saying. It's actually telling because when I started to write the book in 2019, it wasn't a big theme, US export controls. But while I was writing it, especially in 2020, I had the idea, okay, this is going to become big. And, and certainly the latest events have shown that this is becoming really big. So essentially what the U.S. is doing is that it is targeting semiconductors. These are tiny electronic components that are present in pretty much everything, every electronic object that we use, so your laptop or a mobile phone or mic or anything. And these have both civilian and military purposes, semiconductors. And that is really important because missiles, for instance, are full of semiconductors, so are submarines or fighter jets. And so the country that will control the best technology for semiconductors will have a military advantage. And so far, it is U.S. companies that control the technology behind the most advanced semiconductors. And so the U.S. is making the bet that by restricting China's access to this technology, the U.S. is going to delay China's advances in the technological field. But I actually argue in the book that there are two issues with this narrative, which is also a decoupling narrative. I'm absolutely not saying this isn't the right thing to do, but I think that we need to consider two things. Maybe we need to do export controls, but we need to have a clear view of their effects. The first one is that this means that China is going to double down 
on what they call strategic autonomy, on its efforts to build the best semiconductors. And I was taking a look, even including the latest US funding for semiconductors, Chinese public funding for that field is 30 times higher than American public funding for semiconductors. So I think this is very significant because it means that even if a large share of this financing is wasted, as it certainly will be, China will catch up at some point with the US on this semiconductor field. And the second thing is that I think there's a lot of unease about unilateral US export controls on semiconductor technology. In my discussions, I'm not entirely sure that companies in Taiwan or in South Korea and companies in Europe also are ecstatic and enthusiastic about these export controls because they also need to implement them. It's exactly the same as US secondary sanctions. If European companies, for instance, don't impose these export controls, well, they won't have access to the US market anymore. They will lose access to US technology. So they don't really have a choice, but it's not their policy. And so I think that it is important that there is some recognition of this among US policymakers and maybe discussions around that to ensure that US export controls don't backfire and don't have unintended consequences. So I'm curious to learn from you what key trends you are seeing around what you called sanctions resistance, the idea that in response to a growing intention of the United States to use unilateral sanctions, that governments or entities around the world are devising mechanisms to avoid those sanctions. What are some of those key trends that you're seeing? There are three trends. The first one we've discussed a few minutes ago, it's all this de-dollarization trend. And I think it's actually a, a big one. And it is supported by something that is called a bilateral currency swap that allows central banks in every country around the world to do trade in their local currencies directly with each other. Because in general, when you do trade, say, and I'm, I'm picking examples randomly between South Africa and India, you wouldn't trade in South African runs, the South African currency and Indian rupees. You would use a third currency, usually the US dollar, and you would conduct trade with this third currency as some sort of a proxy. But actually, there are a number of central banks globally that are inking partnerships with each other. These are called bilateral currency swaps to bypass this third currency, usually the US dollar, and do trade with each other directly in their local currencies. And I, I think one example you cite of that in your foreign affairs article is the Indian government buying Russian missile systems directly from Russia without using U.S. dollars to avoid U.S. sanctions, right? Absolutely. And they also resurrected a bilateral currency swap that dated back to Soviet times to do that, because normally sanctions prohibit all countries around the world from buying Russian military gear. This is, you know, all the saga around the S-400 missiles that Turkey bought from Russia too. India bought the exact same missiles and to escape US sanctions, they bought the missiles using a mix of Russian rubles and Indian rupees. And this shielded the transaction from US sanctions, at least in part. I mean, in the end, there were no sanctions from the US following this transaction. So I think that's very significant, you know, especially when you see this again from allies because India isn't exactly part of the club of Russia, China, Iran, Venezuela, Cuba, North Korea. You know, it's, it's a US life. So I think this is very significant. The second mechanism 
as alternatives to SWIFT. So what is SWIFT? SWIFT is like a global Rolodex of banks, and it helps to route financial transfers, financial wires across banks around the world. SWIFT is based in Belgium, and essentially it needs to retain access to the US dollar, of course. So the US has some leverage on SWIFT. And in 2012, the US put some pressure over SWIFT so that SWIFT would cut the access of all Iranian banks to its network. And SWIFT at first was reluctant to do so, but under pressure from the US, well, it had to give in. And this put Iran in complete financial isolation. This was very significant for Iran. And Essentially, countries around the world that are around sanctions or that are worried of falling under U.S. sanctions are seeking to build alternatives to SWIFT. And the biggest of these is in China. It's called SIPS. It is far, far smaller than SWIFT. It is about 100 times smaller than SWIFT in terms of the volume of transactions. But it works. And it connects around 1,300 banks around the world, including American ones and European ones. And what China is doing, it's a two-fold strategy. It's both defensive and offensive. It's defensive because if China were to be cut off from SWIFT, well, it has a ready-made backup. It has a plan B. From day one, SIPs would work as an alternative. And it's also offensive because... There is every reason to believe that maybe in a few years or decades when China becomes very probably the world's largest economy in the late 2030s, it will be able to tell companies and entire countries, well, if you want to do trade with me and by me, by then it will be the world's largest economy surpassing the US, you need to use SIPs. And so if China wants to, it will be able to completely cut off entire countries or companies from the Chinese market of 1.4 billion people. So I think this is also significant. And finally, the third tool is central bank digital currencies. And again, China leads the way. Around 300 million Chinese people already use a Chinese digital currency. It's stored on the wallet of their personal mobile phones. And they use this currency to settle transactions, send money, pay bills. And of course, U.S. sanctions would have absolutely no impact on this central bank digital currency. And it also has some other advantages for China. Of course, it allows the Chinese leadership to track every transaction in real time, which is very significant, will make it very difficult for U.S. intelligence officers to do operations on Chinese soil if there is no cash and everything is recorded on a mobile phone. And also, there is every reason to believe that China will try to launch this currency more globally as part of the internationalization of the renminbi to settle transactions internationally. And actually, it has pilot projects with Thailand and the UAE to do precisely that. So these are the, the three mechanisms. And I think that we're going to see a rise in these mechanisms, de-dollarization, alternatives to SWIFT and central bank digital currencies. And over time, all of these taken together will gradually decrease the effectiveness of U.S. sanctions. So from a U.S. foreign policy point of view, what can be done to maintain the efficacy of sanctions? Is it just that the United States needs to be a little more judicious in applying sanctions so that backlash to those sanctions doesn't create new mechanisms of sanctions resistance? Or is it that the United States ought to think more multilaterally when conceiving of sanctions? 
exactly the two answers that I was going to give. I think that the first step is about having a clearer view, a clearer picture of the side effects and ripple effects of US sanctions. And actually, it was telling that a few weeks ago, in late 2022, the US Treasury OFAC posted a job ad to recruit someone who would be tasked with doing precisely that. And I think it was telling to see that there was no one in charge of studying the ripple effects and the side effects of US sanctions in the past. So I think we go back to this antibiotics metaphor. No one is saying antibiotics are bad. They prevent many deaths every year. They're very, very important in modern medicine. But we try to avoid overusing them because otherwise there are side effects and there is resistance. And I think this parallel works very well with sanctions. So having a clear view of these side effects, to me, is the first step. And the second step is to work with allies, because we know that multilateral sanctions, and these are the sanctions imposed against Russia at the moment, and we haven't touched upon that, but these sanctions are having a huge impact on the Russian economy. Why is this? Because both the US and the EU and other Western democracies, Canada, Australia, Japan, are imposing sanctions at the same time. And this is very, very hard to circumvent for Russia. Of course, Russia is turning to China, but China won't be able to fully offset the impact of sanctions. And so I would say the second step is work with allies, work multilaterally. These sanctions are much harder to draft, of course, because everyone needs to be on board. But these sanctions are much harder to circumvent. And even China wouldn't be able to lose access at the same time to the American and European markets. That would be a tremendous blow for a Chinese economy. So I think, to me, the future is for multilateral sanctions. And I would hope that there will be more of such sanctions in the future, because in my view, they're the best cure for sanctions resistance. So I am fascinated by your aside on Russia you just made. So Russia is under both U.S. and multilateral sanctions from some of the most powerful economies in the world. Have you seen examples of sanctions resistance from Russia or has Russia developed any new mechanisms to avoid those sanctions that potentially could be exported elsewhere and used elsewhere by other entities seeking to avoid U.S. sanctions or multilateral sanctions? Oh, absolutely. Russia is very good, actually, at sanctions evasion and at sanctions resistance. So the first thing that Russia is doing very well is this de-dollarization. When we take a look at the foreign exchange reserves of the Russian Central Bank, as we've discussed, half of them weren't denominated in Western currencies. And actually, it's it's very interesting because there's been um, something announced over the past few days that Russia would re-implement a budget rule. And no, it is going to have a lot more foreign exchange reserves in the Chinese currency. So this is sterling. This is not random. The second thing is we were talking about alternatives to SWIFT, and Russia actually has a domestic payment system called MIR. And it is interesting because a lot of Russian payments card use the system, and this has really helped to mitigate the impact of the withdrawal of Visa and MasterCard from the Russian market. It is also telling about Mir. Some countries around the world were actually accepting payments card using this Mir system. Turkey was one, Vietnam was one, Central Asian countries also. But because of US pressure, 
they have gradually stopped accepting the payments card from Russia using the MIR system. So this is interesting because you see US leverage here and still the fact that when the US threatens sanctions, well, this has a, a lot of leverage. So I would say these are the two main mechanisms. And we know that Russia also has plans about a central bank digital currency, so following in the footsteps of China. And we can think that these are going to happen in the coming years and decades, but Russia will have some problems here because what the Russian economy does very well is that it produces commodities, but it needs technology from abroad. And recent Western sanctions are restricting Russia's access to technology. And this is far harder to circumvent. You know, we're not talking about importing some basic food staples, for instance. We're talking about importing technology that is extremely complex and that at the moment the US controls. So Russia will struggle to do sanctions invasion on a large scale, but it will certainly try to. Well, Agat, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>